Podo. Welcome to the Ned Lard Radio Hour. I'm Nick Hilton. Welcome. You've got mail. When I started mentioning my plan to do this podcast to people, when it was just an embryonic idea, their usual response would be, oh yeah, some of that new AI stuff is really terrifying. And that was true, but my impetus for the show was something more holistic. As I've been saying repeatedly for the last year, I'm as apprehensive about screen addiction and device dependency as I am about AI itself. After all, AI requires a vessel, and that vessel is usually all the hardware we've allowed to become enormous social crutches. But it feels like every week there's a new story in AI that's designed to make me reappraise that belief. Maybe AI is the the big thing to be scared of. It fits that existential narrative, like climate change or nuclear Armageddon or pandemics, that make your bowels go all squishy. There's a threat of extinction in there. And that feels a bit more urgent than the question of whether teenagers are spending too much time TikToking. In the past couple of weeks, OpenAI, the leading AI development company at, at present, if this was the space race, they'd be the USA, released Sora. Sora, which I'm pronouncing Sora, but I've only ever seen it written down. Sora is for video what ChatGPT is to writing or Dali is to image. It is prompt-based, hyper-realistic video generation. Some of the examples are a bit squiffy. Cats that don't quite move like cats or have a few too many toes. But mostly they're alarmingly good. Alarming in the way that they can make the unreal real and elide the difference there. This podcast isn't going to be more scaremongering about AI because nobody really needs to hear that. But it's important to think about the history and nature of intelligence, both artificial and otherwise. Artificial intelligence is, after all, the pursuit of something quite simple, a thinking machine. Something external to the human locus, which has human-level potential. Potential to think, to consider, to create. In truth, we've been reliant on forms of artificial intelligence for some time. Things like autocorrect or spell checker or the tool on Gmail that finishes my sandwiches for me. Things like GPS, where I listen to a dead-eyed voice telling me which turning to take and trust that it's not going to drive me off a suspension bridge. Things like lights or wipers on your car that come on when it's dark or rainy. All of these are forms of intelligence. All of these are artificial. What they are not, however, is creative. They are linear forms of intelligence programmed by humans. Your headlights come on because a series of human-built sensors detect that the light levels have dropped sufficiently to require additional lighting support. That's clever, but it's not an aspirational form of intelligence. It's an intelligence that streamlines a boring, easy process for lazy humans. Side note though, my car doesn't have automatic headlights and I find it shockingly easy living in a big city to forget to turn them on. So perhaps I shouldn't call it easy. But the dream of something more complex... A self-thinking mechanism is far older than the past few years. It's something that stretches back into medieval times and into the realms of ancient mythology. After all, 
What is the tree of knowledge of good and evil but an early prototype of Wikipedia? What is Pandora's box if not a forerunner of Elon Musk's X? Anyway, I told Ned that I wanted to delve into the history of AI and they came back with this short, snappy and kind of oppositional note. You're tempted to conflate all technologies. It is plausible that a technology should be intelligent only as a mirror to human intelligence. That is interesting as the bedrock of technological design, but an entirely separate consideration. The question of AI, the biggest question of our time, is when technology is no longer a mirror, nor even a refracting prism, but a false mirror, a second screen, a show all of its own. When it is no longer purely doing the programmatic bidding of its human designers, but the bidding of strange native impulses. That is not a question for history, it's a question for the future. Now, this is something that I agree and disagree with. It's obvious to me, at least, that there is a lot of interesting stuff to be considered as we move towards this weird thing that creepy dudes on the internet venerate, artificial general intelligence, AGI. But I also think that's a distraction from the here and now, where less amazing, less revolutionary forms of AI are beginning to make themselves known. And these do seem to me like the direct descendants of so many of our long-held views about knowledge, its acquisition, storage, and analysis. So I decided to speak to Kester Bruin, an author who works for the delightfully named Institute for the Future of Work here in London. He's just about to release a new book called Godlike, a 500-year history of artificial intelligence in myths, machines and monsters. Don't think of what you're about to hear as a history of artificial intelligence, per se, but a history instead of the impulse that has led us inexorably towards AI. Uh, Yes, so I'm in Crystal Palace centre of the tech universe with an enormous radio tower here and it's just after half past one on a Friday afternoon. Well fantastic I think I can see the same uh, <laughs> the same radio tower outside out of my window although to be fair about half the houses in South London can see that that radio tower. Yes. And you've got a new uh, book out which is called I've got it here it's called Godlike. That, that's a line you or a descriptor that you've taken from Ian Hogarth. Is that right? That's right. So he is uh, someone who's very involved in kind of leading the government's AI safety response. Um, and he wrote an article for the Financial Times uh, about a year ago now where he was saying, you know, actually, these technologies are, you know, kind of godlike in in their in their capabilities. And that really, really struck me um my my dad uh was a church of england minister so i was kind of brought up you know with kind of embedded within the the kind of theological language and i've explored that in some of my past books and it struck me that ai is one of those things you know it's, it's so large in its kind of conception it doesn't it doesn't just impact person to person but it's one of these what you'd call a big other system that actually theological language is quite useful for for understanding how that is. And, uh, you know, I'm not a believer myself, but I think that we kind of ditch all of our theological language at our peril because the problem with that is that it leaves us unable to talk about these very, very large systems which are going to become, I think, quite important in our kind of, you know, social relationships. The the book itself is a kind of history of the ideas behind AI as much as the technology itself. The technology itself is, I guess, fairly nascent and has changed radically even in the last couple of years. But the the ideas, the thoughts behind it are something that you trace back hundreds of years. Take me back to the the very first kind of dream that was 
a sort of artificial intelligence, an intelligence that could be housed outside of the human mind? You mean, yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, so what I wanted to do with the book, a, a lot of books I've read about AI are always looking forward into the future and what the future is going to be like. And I wanted to look the other way. I wanted to look backwards and say, hold on a minute, you know, like all technologies, um, they, they come from within the human heart. And it seemed important to work out where that was coming from mm-hmm. and, you know, how long we dreamt of this technology. And the more I thought about it, actually, the further and further back it goes. I, I talk about 500 years um, and that marker, the beginning of the book, um, is of, a, of a, an Italian monk called Giordano Bruno, who uh, w- w- went to the Pope and said, I've come up with this technology, which allows me to understand all things and to know all things. And the connection being, if I can do that, I will become like God. Now, that might seem a stretch, but actually that's pretty orthodox in Christian belief. And if you go right back to the beginning of Genesis, the serpent says to Eve, you know, come on, eat the apple. Actually, the text says, you know, if you do that, you will know all things and you will become like God. So in a sense, this idea of being able to understand everything and to have access to all knowledge is very linked to this very, very deep idea within us that we can augment ourselves, we can kind of elevate ourselves up into the cloud and we can become better human beings. Um, You know, more recently, in terms of the, the... the birth of a of a of a full artificial intelligence system. I, t- I tell the story, kind of linked to the you know the recent Oppenheimer film, um, about one of the guys who was working on that Manhattan project and realizing this extraordinarily powerful technology that was being developed. And he's like, oh my God, you know. So this is Vannevar Bush, who was coordinating all the scientists in the U.S. in terms of their war effort. Uh, and he wrote a piece for Atlantic magazine, which was published just after the Trinity. Uh, again, religious language, Trinity test of the first atomic bomb, saying, look, you know, we've done amazing things to kind of like bring about violence and the destruction of lots of people to win the war. Um, actually, we've got to turn ourselves to, to technologies of peace. And he theorized this machine called a Memex, which he said, you know, it's like a, a, and he was using the technology of the day, which is like a, you know, a big desk and it's got these microfilm reels and and you can kind of Uh, import ideas from other people and have a look at that. And he says, by doing that, we will artificially augment our memory. And by doing that, we'll become more empathetic and then we'll become more peaceful. Mm. And one of the people who saw that article was a soldier, uh, you know, kicking his heels out in the the Pacific uh, called Doug Engelbart. And it took him 20 years. But in 1968, he produced his version of the Menlex, which which was this digital computer, which he said, was going to be, you know, augmenting human intellect for the furtherance of peace. You use in the in that in that kind of description of the history of it, you use the words know and understand sort of interchangeably, even though I would have think they're quite different. I mean, the desire to create a repository for knowledge is something that goes back, I mean, I think it goes back earlier than 500 years because it goes back to cave paintings, didactic yeah. cave paintings. It goes back to the library at Alexandria. You know, there is a, an understanding that the human bandwidth, the scope of all memory is finite and that some knowledge has to be stored externally. But a comprehension machine, an external comprehension machine, an external creative machine is a slightly different concept to that. Do, do you sense that any point that where there is a clear attempt to create something outside of the human mind that basically resembles human consciousness, human understanding, human creativity, distinct from just simply being a an extra hard drive? 
Yeah, I mean, and it's an excellent distinction. And it's one that's <laughs> become very confused because obviously our lives are absolutely, you know, facing this tsunami of data. And, you know, out of data, I guess a level above that, you could talk about information and then about knowledge and wisdom and so on. And, and the, you know, the promise has been always that with more data, we will become more knowledgeable and wise. And I, I just do not believe that is the case. Yeah, there's that, uh, that, that film with Bradley Cooper where it's like you've unlocked an extra 20% of your brain and suddenly you're the most, like you've almost yeah. like a superhero, where I, I suspect you would be very and similar. Really interesting how early that comes about and that, that the pioneers of, of, of computing technology kind of, they don't deliberately make a category distinction, but I think they're kind of really excited about this possibility and end up, creating systems where we get lots more data but we don't get lots more wisdom or knowledge mm-hmm. interestingly there was a there was a split very early on in the computing community um so doug engelbart who i talked about earlier he was very much about in what he called ia intelligence augmentation and then there was another group led by people like marv minsky who would say things like no no, no we want we want separate kind of conscious machines, as it were, that are, that are not, you know, anything to do with humans. So, I mean, interestingly, to go back to, you know, Oppenheimer and, and the, the book that the film was based on, the American Prometheus, and there's this idea of, of technology as the Promethean Act. Um, and really, you know, AI has been about a very kind of cheap giveaway of that most precious gift, you know. They took all our language, all the books, all the kind of sources, all those kind of things, and and fed it into a machine and gave it the ability to generate language. Does that mean that it is generating uh, something beyond that? I really do not believe that that is the case. And I think this is the thing, like technology promises always a great deal. And my my scepticism about it is that we have to be very wary of what that promise really is. Because to give you the kind of, you know, punchline of the book, actually, it's the technology companies who are trying to become more godlike. But the only way they can do that is to kind of sell to us and think, oh, you're going to become amazing and all knowledgeable. I just don't buy it. Right. So the technology itself, the, the use of the term godlike is, is almost ironic in your in your sense. But the another analogy, the, another kind of classical analogy that people use for this sort of thing is Pandora's box. The sense yeah. that on one hand, there's, you know, Microsoft and OpenAI or Google and DeepMind mm. developing these technologies, trying to see down the line profitable uses for artificial intelligence but there's also quite a lot of people who feel like once the genie is out of the bottle there will be no putting it back in and there's a big you know open source movement in artificial intelligence there's also a sense that you know if state actors not bound by the capitalist constraints of the west start to unlock the possibilities of ai very rapidly we'll enter a stage where it doesn't self-regulate in the way that big tech does because to some extent big tech is still driven by shareholder incentives is there a world in which the technology the technology itself might not be godlike but like it it reaches a point of oversaturation where it's uncontrollable by human forces anymore i think it will be functionally uncontrollable which is why i've been using this language of of the big other you know so um there's an excellent book by a guy called David Noble uh, called The Religion of Technology, where he kind of plots how religion functions in a kind of technological way and that it promises this idea of human augmentation. But that kind of then flips over 
into technology becoming a kind of religious promise itself. And you've got to look at, you know, the classic images of Steve Jobs and these great product launches and they're like cathedrals, you know, and oh my God, you know, and all the acolytes and all the rest of it. So without a doubt, there is this, there is this promise. That, and, and I think the thing about it flipping over into something that just becomes slightly uncontrollable, that's very much going to be that case because the AIs are just going to be so embedded and so out there and generating so much content, I'm not sure that it's particularly going to be something that any particular group or a, or a regulator has control of, which is why, you know, my clarion call in the book is that we've always been called to be reflective users of technology, and that's incredibly important, and, and we don't do that enough. But now it is going to be more fundamental than ever, because that 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 kind of enormous wave of technology's impact on us is going to be more strong than ever. So, you know, machines becoming more human-like is one thing, but the, the greater danger is that we become more machine-like in our work. And we have got to find ways to retain our own sense of humanity. And that is going to take some conscious work. I really do think that is the case. Mm. We'll come to um, the question of work and labour and in a second. Th- this distinction you're drawing between sort of augmentation and full artificiality, sort of separate thing, it reminds me very much of of the question of virtual reality versus augmented reality, which is was has been a big debate in tech circles for the last few years. Meta went very heavily for this idea of virtual reality. You'd have an avatar of yourself. You put on a headset. You'd sort of barely be present in the world, but there would be a little you with this seductive little legs running around in the metaverse, and that kind of got no interest. It got no uptake. And it felt more with Apple Glass and things like that. Well, maybe it's not called Apple Glass. What is it called? I, whatever it is, Vision Pro. Uh, Google Glass was the original crazy glasses. Yeah, yeah, I'm still waiting for my Google Glass. Yeah, that's been a long time coming. But it felt like people were moving, understanding that augmented reality rather than virtual reality offered a sense of making people bionic, but retaining their humanity, just making you a better version of yourself, which is very seductive to humans. Is that the best that we can hope for in terms of the outcomes of AI, that we're not rendered redundant. There's just a great sort of technological equalization of people's abilities. I mean, it's possible. So I agree that, you know, the the virtual reality thing is still some way off, although there is still a very, very passionate movement to people like Ray Kurzweil, who are trying to do this kind of sense of uploading your consciousness. Um, and in fact, again, within the history, that that blurring between the two of of augmenting human capabilities, but then going beyond that. I mean, you know, Danny Hillis, one of the great AI pioneers, calls the body a a bloody mess of organic matter and, you know, no more than a meat machine. And he is kind of keen to get rid of the body as quickly as possible. I think there's some resistance uh, to that, clearly. But there's also, you know, loads of positives about being able to augment bodies. I mean, I was listening to a segment on the radio this morning about uh, you know, a, a guy who, who had to, uh, was born without without uh, lower arms, and he, you know, this new kind of prosthetic arm which he uses without loads of kind of Neuralink inputs actually allows uh, somebody to be able to um, kind of have that control, which is fantastic. And there are lots of th- really good things about that. In terms of equalization, I think we've got to be really careful about that because again, that will be the promise. But the the delivery of that promise, I think, is going to be much more complicated. Um, You know, I've always had this thing about technology that it always, all technologies offer us some form of amplification. 
you know, I personally can't push a nail into the wall with my thumb, um, but a hammer allows me to do that. It amplifies my ability to reach into the world. But, but all technologies also then reach back through the arm and into the heart and say, OK, now you've got a hammer. What do you want to do with it? And, you know, you could build a treehouse or you could, you know, smash a window. So technology always asks questions of us deep within our, you know, human spirit of what we're going to be. But those questions are very encultured. And the big technology companies are kind of creating desires that we didn't really think that we necessarily had in order to keep us going with their products. So my sense is that I'm not technology negative at all. It's just that we need to be much better reflective users of that to be able to say, OK, look, you know, this is where I, I want to see that technology brought in. This is where I, I think that it's going to be really useful to do that and where it's going to be an enhancement. And it may take away, you know, some dull, dangerous, dirty work that, that still exists as technologies have done brilliantly. But in terms of it levelling us up, I worry that that is going to be the promise and actually that if you look at the equality impact so far on AI, that's not really delivered in that direction. Yeah, I don't find it a particularly seductive promise either because there's this sort of idea that like with AI as a tool, you know, we could all of us write Hamlet and sort of if all of us can write Hamlet, then essentially none of us can write Hamlet because the thing that differentiates Hamlet from, yeah. you know, everything else is it's Hamlet and everything else is not Hamlet. Yeah. And therefore, you know, the, the idea of equalization through technology, I, I, I sort of think is, is sort of anathema to what it means to be human. But let's, 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 rather than me going into a kind of boring spiral about Shakespeare, let's move to work because in your day job, when you're not writing these books, you work for the Institute for the Future of Work yeah. here in London, which is a think tank looking at the way that AI is going to collide with the world of work. And obviously, my dog is whining at the window, so you may be able to hear him. Obviously, this podcast is called Ned Ludd Radio Hour. The Luddites are a labor movement. They're a labor movement concerned with technology. So how worried should people be for their jobs? Not a small question. Yeah, I mean, the, the classic line is, you know, robots are coming for our jobs. And one of the key pieces of work that we've done is a, is a paper called Reframing Automation, where we take a, a deeper dive and say, look, you know what? Automation impacts are, there are many of them, and they have different impacts on different groups of people um, at different times. So, you know, automation might be something to do with being able to do telepresence. So you might have a skilled worker in Vietnam who's able to kind of input into how a warehouse mm -hmm. is running in Chicago. So we're not talking about whole jobs being moved. I think the bigger concern is how it will impact people's work with the job that they are doing and how that might change in terms of work intensification, but also their ability to, to use discretion within their role. So if you are, for example, you know, uh, an Uber driver, you don't have great discretion on your work because you, you, know, you follow the route that the thing tells you in order to be able to do that most efficiently. So you've taken away that sense of discretion. And for many people in work, we know that that leads to impacts on health and well-being, and also just the idea of human flourishing. But there are other senses in which AI can lead to higher dis discretion. If it takes away some of the routine stuff, it's possible that it could leave us in a situation where our time is used better on the kind of more interesting work, as it were. But that, again, is going to be about management culture and it's therefore about 
you know, regulation, profit motive and, and, and those sorts of things. So in the last budget, we saw Jeremy Hunt kind of uh, solidify this thing on full expensing on investment in machinery so that companies mm-hmm. claim back all the, or, you know, lots of tax on investment in machinery. We don't see that with investment in people. And that, that's, that we would say is completely bonkers. You know, what, what, what companies need to be doing is investing in people because as the research that we've done shows through, you know, kind of detailed surveys of technology adoption, it's only when you invest in people and the new machines that you get anything like any kind of decent output. Right. Uh, if you do that, you can get some really good outputs. But if you don't, you get something pretty rubbish. Right. There seem to be sort of two slightly utopian delusions that kind of come up when you talk about AI and and work. The first being this idea of fully automated luxury communism, <laughs> where we'll we'll have no worries in the world because computers and technology will do everything for us. Yeah. Which we're some way off for various reasons. A year or here I do. And the other one is this one that you sort of alluded to, which is um, this idea that, you know, if computers and AI can take over the grunt work, you know, no one will have to be a shit shoveler and we can all do what we have a passion for and the stuff that feels genuinely important, which seems equally optimistic to me. Yeah. It's clear to me that there's some use cases very productive use cases for AI, not least in, for instance, triaging in healthcare and pharmaceutical development, that sort of thing. That's where you don't want to be a Luddite for, for, for yeah. when you when AI can clearly do some good. But what it seems to me is that it's clearly going to replace a lot of jobs, not unlike my own, not possibly unlike your own. Yeah. And the question is how quickly it does it and whether we are socially ready for a sort of mass exodus of purpose from, from kind of white-collar workers particularly. Is that something you guys grapple with or is this just me yeah, very much. Middle class fear mongering. You know, we are seeing a new industrial revolution. You won't tell from the accent, but I was actually born in, in South Yorkshire. Um, and in, in fact, I was watching a documentary the other night on, on BBC about the miners' strike. And, you know, this kind of just full on, very, very fast decimation of a particular industry. Mm. Now, it's not an industry that necessarily, you know, environmentally was one that should have been sustained over, you know, forever. But the, the, the kind of nature of the, the, the pace of transition was just absurd. Like they just shut things down and left people to rot. And we absolutely must make sure that that does not happen again. So this is about a kind of just transition of labour. Um, we have been doing quite a lot of work across different sectors. So one of the projects we have is with the UK creative sector, which is, you know, a real powerhouse of the UK economy. And it's incredibly important that that sector is protected. But there are all kinds of interesting impacts when we talk to people in that creative sector. You know, I've met people, voice artists, their work has disappeared um, because there are now people who are able to, you know, just just kind of click. Yeah, get get me an audio book for, for, for 20 quid rather than having to pay someone that that time to do it. Is the quality any good? It's OK but it's completely statistically kind of average. So you don't really get a sense of personality at all. Um, now, you could say, for example, you know, my mum, her eyesight's not great, cheaper audio books, good. Um, but how do we begin to transition people in a just way into that? And what should be done about the fact that two years ago, this voice artist I was speaking to, was asked to kind of come and do these little voice tests for this really kind of mysterious piece of work. And they were, you know, offering 70 quid. 
And it turns out they just stole everyone's voices. You know, they asked them to read a thing out and that was it. You know, that, that absolutely unacceptable. So there's lots of protections that need to be put in place where people need to be really smart and aware of what's happening. Um, but it's also the, 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 the kind of complexities of how you get that kind of stream of people coming into a job. So, you know, it classically in the film or TV business, you might have someone who comes in as a runner and isn't paid very much and they make the tea and they kind of, you know, gradually do a bit of coding of this and that. And they, they sort of gradually pick up the skills within a within a uh, an environment and get to know people and where we're seeing ai hit is that it's knocking out that early career stuff of the the grunt job of just being around and coding videos and that kind of stuff but where where then do people get into the industry the entry point becomes so high that you're you're kind of losing the pipeline so we've got to be really really careful Say, oh, you know, great, yeah, we, we can automate a whole load of processes. You, you could be cutting off the pipeline. We'll only see the result of that in 10 years' time when we'll suddenly realise nobody's got those skills anymore. Mm. The complexity of having a sort of two-sided market where everyone is both customer and yes. you know and creator and provider. And, you know, we've got this maxim that the customer is always right and we always try and do the thing that is best for the consumer, especially because we are all extremely obsessed with consumption but the reality is that we are all down the line both both creator and consumer so yeah, you know yeah, yeah, yeah as you say the more audiobooks for people who are sight impaired brilliant yeah. but you know that just means that there is a down the line knock-on effect that the you know voice actors not just voice actors but producers studios all of these things studios you know have to close can the person who owns the uh, the building get a new tenant? No one wants a studio. Can they pay their mortgage to default on it? You know, yada, yada. And, and even even actors themselves. I was in a meeting yesterday where uh, someone quietly admitted that a company they'd been working with had said that they just used AI generated actors in a, in their latest advert. Yeah. Now that's someone's job. You know, that's somebody's work that's gone through that and we you know we need to think carefully about what the longer term impacts of that because we can make the future and i do believe that we have agency to do that we've got to think you know what kind of future do we want and the 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 kind of big heart of the book at the end is that you know we've got these top level big companies and governments and regulators and stuff and then we've got ourselves down here as the individuals slightly atomized by social media but you know but what we're missing is these mid-level structures and these mid-level structures are where we kind of, you know, gather together in in kind of situations of, of proper trust and, and relationship where you meet the other. You meet people who are not the same as you, but you have this kind of cross-cutting relationship around that. And it's there that we can begin to think, well, hold on a minute, you know, is this something that we want in, in terms of in, within our community? This is a good thing. And those mid-level structures allow you then to talk up to the kind of higher structures of, uh, of government. And you might be talking about churches or trades unions or, or you know, kind of uh, local business groups, whatever. But they're, they're places where people are known uh, and where they meet people who aren't just exactly like them or in their tiny local group. We've had a massive evacuation of those structures since the 1960s. Uh, and we really need to make sure that we don't lose those any further. In fact, start to rebuild them because AI is going to have that kind of massive impact of further weakening those things, um, which I think is, is is a real danger. Yes. Okay. I admire your diligence in saying trades union 
rather than trade unions. Um, <laughs> just finally, then, we'll have one last question, which is a big one, which is that when the book on the history of AI is written in 10 years' time, and it's probably it's probably not written by a human, when the in 10 years' time someone inputs the prompt, write the history of AI, how radically different do you think the artificial intelligence landscape of 10 years' time looks from today? You know, the difference between today and 500 years ago looks enormous, but so does the difference between today and 20 years ago. Are we looking at another jump forward of the same enormity or or will it be closer than we, than I think, than um, pessimists suspect to what we're seeing today in 10 years' time? And it's such a good question. So the, the book has been written you know, at pace as things keep evolving and changing. So even over yeah. the course of writing a book, you know, like a nine month process, this changes, this changes, this develops, this develops, uh, which makes things complicated. So the pace of change is enormous. The pace of response is growing quite quickly. So we see the EU AI Act, we see lots of stuff coming in the States to kind of deregulation. The government's AI safety summit was, a you know, a bit of a mess, but actually there was some really good meaning stuff there out there about AI safety. So it is it is going to be interesting, we can say that much. I do think there are going to be enormous changes. So whereas a year ago we had, you know, ChatGTP doing amazing stuff, generating text, uh, just this last week, OpenAI have, have, you know, introduced a system where it's text to video, so that, you know, the text is responding and it will give you that video output. So we're going to see huge changes like that. We are going to see enormous kind of threats uh, on those kind of bigger scale systems. And whether those escape into a wider problem is as yet unknown. But I think it is going to be radically different. I, at the same time, feel that in terms of the kind of direct augmentation of humans and these kind of chips and all the rest of it, I think we're a little further way off on all that stuff. And actually, I think there's going to be a bit more growing resistance in there. And we saw recently this driverless taxi in, I think it was San Francisco, and a bunch of people just surrounded it and burnt the thing to the ground. I think people are, are sensing, hold on a second, you know, social media kind of was amazing, but it has had some major impacts and, and this risks even further stuff. So I think it's going to be a contested future, without a doubt. The Ned Ludd Radio Hour is a Podo podcast written and presented by me, Nick Hilton. Our theme music is Internet Song by Apes of the State, and the artwork is by Tom Humberson. If you enjoyed this show, please tell people about it. Go on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave a five-star rating. And check out the Reddit, which I'm trying to build, a community there. I think it currently has five members. It's R Ned Ludd. For all other social links, go to nedludlibs.com. 